This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. The 2020 Co-Mindfulness Summit is almost here. Join us on Saturday, October 3rd, live on the BBNR Wellness Consulting Facebook page for an all-day wellness event you won't want to miss. We have Dr. Royzen joining us from the Cleveland Clinic. You most likely know him from the U manuals he co-authored with Dr. Oz. He is also the creator of the Real Age Concept and is a great friend of ours, and we can't wait for you to meet him. Siri Lindley, world champion triathlete, two times over, I might mention, and coach to Olympic and Ironman champions will also join us from Boulder, Colorado. She, too, is a great friend of ours, and we are so excited to have her join us at this year's Co-Mindfulness Summit. We are very honored to be joined by Dr. Vivit Murphy, the 19th Surgeon General of the United States and author of the New York Times bestseller, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. This is such an important topic, probably more now than ever before, and promises to be an engaging conversation. And you won't want to miss Dr. Mark Hyman, who will talk to us about how best to build our immune system to fight COVID-19 and so much more. Join us on Saturday, October 3rd by visiting comindful.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. So today is a very special health gig, right, Doro? Yes, very special. Many of you probably know Sam LeBlanc from All the Best, very popular podcast. And he's with us today, and he's actually Doro's oldest son, right, Doro? Yes. And many of you know Riley Cook as the favorite oldest son of his mother, Trisha Cook. He's my wonderful nephew who I love very much. So now today, Sam and Riley are going to interview us. And what a pleasure it is for us to do so. And I'll start off because as a seasoned host of All the Best, I'll take the first reins here. But I know Riley has a lot to ask you guys along the way. But I'll start with this, guys. You guys both have been practicing mindfulness meditation for as long as I can remember. What about you, Riley? I mean, it seems like it's been forever when this amazing event's been going on. For sure. I want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, out of your work in the mindfulness field, you recently came up with a new concept called co-mindfulness. I had to look it up because I didn't know. It's a practice that is focused on our relationship. So what I want to know, and I'm sure Riley wants to know as well, what made you shift your focus to our relationships? So I think you're right. You know, as you said, your mom and I have been practicing mindfulness for a long time. And Dora, you always give the best definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the basic human ability to be fully present. And our favorite definition of mindfulness is by John Kabat-Zinn, and it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, with kindness. That's mindfulness. And so what mindfulness does, and so much has happened in the world of mindfulness, it helps you, as Dora explained, stay in the present moment. And it's a practice. And people practice it through meditation. People might practice it through a walk through nature. People might find mindfulness when they're listening to music or playing the piano. So mindfulness can come to somebody in different kinds of ways. So as we started going down the path of continuing working as wellness advocates, we're like, gosh, we really want to get the word out for more people to be mindful and to practice mindfulness. But 
a lot of people came back to us and said, I can't do it, right, Dora? People are like, I can't sit for hours and hours on end. And we're like, okay, well, let's figure out different kinds of ways. So that's why we started introducing them to different kinds of thoughts of mindfulness. But then it was a couple of years ago when we had the great honor, and I'll let you tell the story because it's still such an exciting time in our lives. <laughs> well, when we had the great honor to meet His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, we learned a lot from that visit with him, but one of the things we learned, he taught us that if you want to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to make others happy, practice compassion. And the idea was we can all work on ourselves and practice being present, but it isn't until we practice bringing our attention and compassion to our relationships that we can really experience more joy and love in our lives. And we were really surprised by his answer because we really expected him to say, to get a deeper mindful practice going, you really need to meditate because that's what we've learned and that's what we saw. But he really got us thinking that day about how could we look at this a little bit differently. There's something about practicing compassion. What does that look like for you guys? I mean, those questions come up to me when I look at your new co-mindfulness project. Is that something that's pretty important to the co-mindfulness project? It really is. Dora, you want to expand on that? We've developed seven co-mindfulness principles, which help us to work on our relationships. And so what does that look like, you ask? They are giving our full attention, leading with curiosity, not judgment letting go of expectations, committing to the truth, breathing to avoid reacting, holding our integrity and connecting with love. These are all seven ways that we can improve our relationships. I've seen them. I, my mom's kind of walked me through these and each one kind of rings a different note and kind of checks a different box. For me, I'm wondering though, like, how did you guys come up with those seven? And like, are they in an order for any particular reason? Like, where did they come from? As we get into talking about co-mindfulness, this has been in the works for a couple of years. Your mom, Sam, Dora, and I really are so fortunate to have the team that we have that works with us. So many people on our team really dug deep with this. It's a group sort of collaboration, Liz Piccini being really right up there, along with Zanka and Emily and Ellie. That's just important to know. But the principles, Riley, are based on some of the core tenets of mindfulness meditation, like awareness and non-judgment. For example, the principle letting go of expectations in mindfulness meditation, you learn that you are not your thoughts. That's a big part of mindfulness meditation, that we just cannot believe the stories that we tell ourselves, that they're true because they're not. And that's a big part of what we work on. So if I'm not my thoughts, then you certainly aren't my thoughts either. You're not who I think you should be. You're not necessarily even who I think you are. My expectations of you are based on an idea I have about you, an idea that might have very little to do with who you actually are. And if I keep responding to you with my thoughts of who you should be or what you should be doing, then I'm very, very far away from being with you and loving you in the present moment. Co-mindfulness is a practice of staying fully in the present moment with someone else and coming to our relationships from a place of love and compassion. An example may be, you know, when you're meeting someone for the first time and you have all these preconceived notions of who they are and maybe based on where they're from and all of a sudden you have these stories in your head. And the truth is all these stories are just stories. 
we have up to 60,000 thoughts a day in our head, which is amazing. 98% of those thoughts are thoughts we've had the day before. They're the exact same thoughts and 80% of them are negative. So what this co-mindfulness and letting go of expectations helps us do is to come at this relationship with fresh eyes and therefore we're open to what's actually there. Well, Trisha, I heard you refer to mindfulness as a practice. Do you think of it as a practice like meditation is, or is it something different? That's a great question because we do need to address that. Very much so, co-mindfulness is a practice. Like meditation, one makes a conscious decision, a commitment to practice co-mindfulness with other people. So for example, during a conversation I have with you, Sam, I might make the conscious decision to give you my full attention. So rather than sit there with my cell phone, right? I don't know. This happened the other day, Riley, when I was with you. <laughs> They're like, she's not listening. I was on my <laughs> cell phone. I was <laughs> probably talking to my mom. Probably talking to my mom. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Instead, if I'm practicing co-mindfulness, I would say, okay, I'm going to be here. This is a conscious decision. I'm going to put my phone down and I'm just going to sit here for a second because maybe I am a person that likes to multitask. So the practice for me would be to sit and listen. That is a practice. So in that in itself, that's how you sort of consciously decide to practice co-mindfulness. It doesn't come easily not to be distracted by your phone. I mean, we all get so distracted. It's like learning to play the piano or something like that. You might start out, you're not very good at it. But the more you do it, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Right. And it forces you to stay like in that present moment. And, and the other part of that practice of the first tenet or the first one of deep listening is making the conscious decision to allow the other person to speak first and not to interrupt them while they're talking and to ask open-ended questions to draw them out. So for example, you're sitting there, right? And like, I really want to say what I'm thinking. <laughs> I kind of really don't really want to know what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, can you elaborate on that on maybe some examples that you've seen? In professional life, for sure, but also in personal life. And it, I'd imagine it, it's probably even more important to kind of recognize that in your personal relationships you think you maybe know what they're going to say more often than not. And what I'm starting to think is maybe maybe that's not the case. Maybe I'm missing something in some of those conversations. Yeah. And then as you're listening, you're hearing them, but then there's all those nonverbal cues. They walk in and they're crying and you're like, how are you? And they said, oh, I'm fine, but they're bawling. You kind of know they're not fine. Or if you're not really listening, you might be, okay, great. Do you want to go outside for a walk? You know, that kind of thing. Like to really listen, not only with your ears, but also with your heart. I think as parents, it's sometimes really hard to make conscious decisions, for example, to deep listen. Like, for example, Sam has a beard. Right. So <laughs> when Sam walks in the house... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't see past the beard. So he may be saying, mom, I have something really important to talk to you about. And I might be nodding my head like, uh-huh. But all I'm thinking is, when is he going to shave that damn beard? But those are all things that, I mean, it's so important to not be thinking like that and to not be listening to your own thoughts and to be listening to other people. 
and not to be triggered to like your story. So someone wants to come in and tell you his story, like Sam might want to explain why he has a beard, but you're already thinking why he does and he wants to be heard. Sam, anything to add? My brother Robert has had a way bigger beard for way longer. So <laughs> uh, poor guy probably doesn't get a word in edgewise with you, mom, because you just bombard him when he gets into the house. But I know. I'll transition here, guys, because one of the co-mindfulness principles that kind of intrigued me is holding our integrity. Could you guys tell us more about that one? Because it kind of stuck out to me. Holding our integrity is staying grounded in who we are and being true to ourselves because it's really easy in certain relationships to lose who we are. And so it's all about speaking up and setting boundaries and when people aren't treating you the way you really should be treated. So it's holding our integrity and it's important in relationships because they're not always easy. They're not always going to be fixable. And so there are certain times in relationships where you need to stand up for yourself. In their co-mindfulness or in any kind of practice, compassion is what's important, but you don't have to make other people happy. And I think that's a big distinction, right, Dora, something that we've really explored. And oftentimes what we've explored and have even witnessed is that sometimes that person, you can't really work with them and therefore you don't need to. And it's with a compassionate heart that then you walk away. And there's nothing wrong with that. We were talking about, again, making people happy and what is kindness and compassion. And there's a big distinction and giving up your integrity is not what we're talking about here. And in fact, co-mindfulness is often about becoming stronger in your own self as well. So having your integrity and knowing where you want to be and what you want to stand for is really important. In co-mindfulness, you're using the relationships that you have with other people to discover these things about yourself. Yeah, exactly. And that's the practice. So we always say every time you see a person, they're an opportunity to learn more about yourself <laughs> and they're an opportunity to practice mindfulness and they're an opportunity to live a little longer, to live a little happier because that's what co-mindfulness is all about. Yeah. It's a perspective on life. I mean, we are all each other's teachers. I think I've heard you both say our relationships are the next frontier of the wellness movement. Can you talk about that with this group uh, that's going to be listening to this? Because I think that really struck a chord with me. That's what we're most excited about. That's the thing that just gets us like thrilled because what we have found through many, many, many studies, and a lot of them are just coming out, right, Doro? But the Harvard study that was an 80-year-long study that says definitively people who live longer and healthier and happier lives have strong, healthy relationships. It's not the number of relationships that you have, but rather meaningful relationships where they feel safe and strong. We don't see ourselves as, as uh, and this might come as a surprise to both of you, we don't see ourselves as relationship experts. What? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's kind of not what we see ourselves as. What we see ourselves as is really wellness advocates. And to see that wellness now is sort of encompassing not just what you eat, not what you drink, not even what you're thinking. Now it's about what they're saying now and all the studies are showing. It's about relationships. It's about community. It's about the people you choose to bring into your life. And we're saying, how do you do it? You do it through co-mindfulness. And then all of a sudden, you've got yourself a pretty healthy lifestyle going. In fact, the recent studies are saying that loneliness, for example, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That loneliness kills 
faster than even someone who's been obese for most of their life. Like it will cause more deaths. The idea is that we can control our destiny and we can control it through relationships. And we have seen through COVID really how this is true because what would we do without our frontline workers? What would we do without our family living with us? You know, and even though it's been taxing and sometimes difficult, we're not alone in this. And we kind of have seen that we're social beings, right? We're social beings and we need to be with people and we need to be connected. And when we're not is when we get into a lot of trouble physically and mentally. Yeah. So the news is our relationships don't just impact our emotional well-being, but they also impact our physical health. It seems to me, and Riley, you can back me up here if this sounds right to you, that you guys are kind of positioning yourselves now to be on the cutting edge of this new wellness movement. You know, in doing some research before this call today, I kind of looked up some of these things that we had talked about in the last couple of days in preparation. And it really does seem like this is the new wave. Is that what you guys feel like? You're kind of like riding the wave out in front and hopefully going to get in front of this amazing new movement that's coming around the bend? Well, we've been doing this for a while, so it'd be pretty exciting to for finally ahead, you know? <laughs> We've been way ahead. We've Don't way sell ahead. ourselves short. <laughs> Trisha's been studying wellness and prevention for most of her life, thanks to her grandmother, who was way ahead of the wave. And we were pretty ahead in the mindfulness movement before it became mainstream. You and I were talking about it and sharing it in our workshops and in our conferences. So thank you, Sam, for acknowledging that we're ahead of the wave. Well, you guys said earlier that co-mindfulness is a very giving practice. So I don't mean to be blunt here, but what's in it for Riley and me here? What, what, what do we get out of this deal? Well, the act of giving is a good thing. Our brains light up when we give. And Sam, as you know, doing your podcast, All the Best, it's all based on service to others. And as Riley knows, he comes from a family that is constantly giving to others. So the act of giving it's healthy for us. We lead happier lives when we're giving to others. They say that giving in service is the antidote to loneliness and it's the antidote to sadness. And part of that is because it also offers a purpose, you know, a purpose to be here. And now I am giving to you and now I feel like you're going to benefit. And then that brings such joy to me. So it's such a great, a great thing. Does the practice of co-mindfulness become like a give and take type of relationship? Like, does it take that sort of mold on? If you're being co-mindful and you're going about your day that way with another person, and maybe they're not as engaged as you are, are you still able to take things away from that? Definitely. Because as much as this is about the other person and you using them to listen to you, using them to hold your integrity, it is your practice. And oftentimes people that have done this, the person doesn't even know they're practicing with them. Our co-mindfulness masterclass doesn't require that. Now you can, and then there's a different experience. But if I've decided I'm going to practice co-mindfulness again as my practice, I'm not going to be meditating or I'm going to do it in addition to my meditation practice. They don't even need to know. It's really ultimately about you and your practice. But the exciting thing is that I now start building a relationship with this person at a deeper level. And that makes me healthier, happier, and I'm going to live longer. And also, I think that let's say you're practicing a co-mindfulness with someone who's not really engaged. 
for example, I often practice <laughs> co-mindfulness with Bobby. Okay? I'm not sure he's heavily engaged, but that's fine. If you lead by example, like he'll see me being kinder or listening more, maybe not judging him as much, leading with love and compassion rather than, you know, grumpy, argumentative. It kind of rubs off. It's beneficial both ways. You can work them with osmosis, you know? Mm -hmm. Riley and I are, uh, are millennials, believe it or not, even though yeah, I'm we, about we five know. years <laughs> older than him. I like to say I'm more of a Gen Xer. But that being said, our lives are consumed by social media and internet and cell phones. I mean, I was reading a study from Harvard yesterday that said, you know, 80% of students agree that just the point of having your cell phone on you, you don't even have to be looking at it. It's a total distraction from everything. So. That all being said, how do you feel all of that social media and internet and just all-consuming connections between people has affected or impacted our relationships? It's crazy. And there is an impact on our relationships. And many people are saying that we're living in the attention economy. Companies like Facebook and Netflix make billions and billions of dollars based on their ability to capture our attention and keep it for as long as possible. For this reason, social media companies have designed their platforms with like buttons and other features to keep us addicted and constantly coming back. The longer we stay on their platforms, the more we keep coming back and the more money they make. And this is so interesting because it's like our attention is being used for companies to make money. And so our attention and peace of mind are literally under siege. And we need to start becoming much more conscious about where and how we give our attention. Because more than any other material object, our attention has the power to heal others by making them feel seen and understood. And our attention can bridge the differences that divide us. It can forge connection and heal and grow our human community. So it seems a much more worthwhile investment of our attention than making a handful of people billions of dollars if we start spending our attention with each other. And that's something that Vivek Murthy, who's going to be part of our conference, he's written a whole book about it, about how we're giving our attention to the wrong things when really right in front of us, it's where we should be giving our attention because we can heal so many people and have a much stronger community and not be as lonely if we focus our attention on our people and our families and our children and our parents than if we're focusing on you know, making money or on buying the latest, greatest gadgets. We should view our attention as a precious, precious, precious thing that we very carefully give to the right places because giving it away makes us addicted to all the wrong things. Attention is a commodity that's kind of being taken from us. I agree. I think for me, I feel like definitely it's a resource. It's something you give and something you receive. Living so close to my mom's house in Maryland and having my three other siblings quarantine with her during COVID-19 stuff, I did feel like they were getting more attention than I was, you know, like, and I did have these feelings of like, oh man, like I kind of wish I was there. They're like right under the microscope. They're all together. They're sort of capitalizing on each other's attention by being there together. And so, yeah, that feeling of like, like a little bit of loneliness or not being as close to the people with you either because they're consumed by their devices or the phone in front of them or somebody else in front of them that's sort of taking their attention. Yeah, it's a big thing. And feeling like you're paid attention to and giving attention to people you really care about, it really does make a difference. Do you guys think that technology is hurting our close relationships or can they be symbiotic? 
I think they have to be symbiotic because technology is not going away. And especially in a world where we're all working from home and not together. But I think there are limits and boundaries that we need to implement in order to not lose out on putting our attention in places that are more important. We're amidst a pandemic. We're not sure when it's going to end. The need to isolate together has put a lot of stress on people's close relationships. I've seen divorce rates are going up and separations, etc. The need to socially distance has also increased people's isolation and feelings of loneliness. So, you know, you think about people who are together becoming apart. What about the people who didn't have somebody before the pandemic started? They're by themselves. That's crazy to think about. So what advice, and I'm looking for advice, would you guys have for people who are managing their close relationships during such a stressful and uncertain time that we're living in right now? You know, you mentioned that people are alone. Well, you know, my mom, grandma, is a senior citizen and she lives in Pennsylvania in a lovely place that she enjoys and chose to be there. But when COVID came, the seniors weren't able to see anybody. They couldn't see their friends. They couldn't have dinner with anybody. They couldn't see us for months. You know, it was something that we really struggle with. I mean, it took a toll on her. She's 89. Our response, at least what we attempted to do and to practice co-mindfulness was to really take the steps and do it with her over the phone or on Zoom. And really the first one is to really listen because particularly when someone's alone, they just want to be heard and know that they're connected and know that somebody's looking out for them. Riley, was that your experience with grandma? Yeah, definitely. I think her knowing that she had a way to connect with us was important. And I think that kind of goes back to this idea of that symbiotic relationship, Pantora, you were talking about between technology and relationships, like in certain instances, especially now, it's right. kind of critical to facilitate some of our connections or our attention. Right. Like it was just almost like we really did have to breathe a moment and then go back because it was hard to have somebody by themselves isolated. It just triggered us and made us feel so many different ways. So being able to use the co-mindfulness principles really helped in that situation. Fortunately for grandma, I guess, like you were willing to do it and I was willing to do it and her sons and daughters and everybody and Dora and Sam, you guys have done this for people in your family too. But what about people on the other end that don't have a mom or a Dora or a Sam to call them and take them through these practices? I think Sam was getting at that earlier. Like, what do they do? How do they participate? And I think that that's what, when we explore and talk about this, that's where service comes in. You know, if people understand what compassion is and they practice compassion, automatically they're going to look outside themselves and they're going to see someone who's alone and maybe reach out to them. Right, Doro? Is that how you would describe it? That's what I was going to say is if everyone could just look around, you might see a neighbor who you realize just maybe lost a spouse and is alone. The compassion part of the co-mindfulness will inspire you to be in touch with that person. And I don't think there's a better time than now for co-mindfulness. Every single principle applies outside of COVID, but applies to COVID. I mean, if there was ever a time to not judge how people are dealing with the pandemic and how things are going in their own homes, it's now. If there ever was a time to commit to the truth, to be honest about what's going on, it's now and it's on and on. And so our hope is that people can connect with this and try it out and that our communities can improve. I have a question for you two. What do you think of the principles? And if there was one principle you think you would like to practice when you get home tonight with the lovely Emily and the lovely Lee, 
what would it be? The first one. It's giving our full attention. That's so hard. To your guys' point earlier with technology and distractions, being able to focus on your relationship and give your full attention to your spouse or your friend or your son is so important. And it's hard and it takes practice. And all these things, they're not overnight revelations. There's stuff that you have to work out. And I think that as you go in with that sort of mindset, if you know, hey, I'm going to work on giving my full attention, you might not give 100% of your attention to the other person that time. But if you focus on it, you're going to get more and more and more. And soon, it'll be something that instead of something that you're practicing, it'll be something that's built into your own being, something that is part of you. And so I think for me, giving the full attention is something that's always a struggle, whether it be distractions for the football game or you know work or social media, whatever it may be. All those things stand in the way, but with practice, what I always say in in my job, part of what I do is teach our organization how to be safer. I can teach you once and say, this is how you do it, but it's not that easy. To form a habit takes three months of working on it every single day. It's really, really easy to fall back onto a bad habit. So that's why it takes a lot of focus and something like giving my full attention is something I have to work on every single day. So hopefully at one point, I'm not there yet, but at one point I can get to a point where I don't have to think about it. And my attention is given to Lee fully. It's given to my mom. It's given to Trisha or Riley, whoever I will be at that time. But it takes practice. And I think that's something important for the listeners to kind of know is that this isn't flip to switch. This is something you need to practice every single day. And soon over time with that practice, it'll become a part of who you are. That's the one that really stuck out to me and something that I try to work on every single day. Sam kind of has me sold on giving our full attention, but I will go a different direction for the sake of our conversation here. I've thought about this prior, but it kind of came up again, I think, when we started talking about how you guys came up with the principles. And the one that stands out is letting go of expectations and the concept that they're all based on thoughts or ideas that I have in my own head that I probably haven't communicated. So when I go home to Emily, you know, I definitely do have like just certain things in my mind and I didn't communicate them. So I think that's the one that I'm definitely going to focus on. And that expands well beyond my relationship with Emily and into all other parts of my life. But having these really lofty expectations of others and of my own self. I feel like there's some work I can do there. What I find interesting, and Riley, you can attest to this, your guys' relationship, Trisha, my mom, it seems like you guys' relationship is the embodiment of co-mindfulness. So your sister-in-laws, your best friends, your business partners. I know Riley will give me the thumbs up on this. Every time my mom's phone rings, it's Trisha, and I'm sure it's vice versa. They'll have a Zoom call together. The call will end. And then the phone will ring and it'll be Trish. I said, aren't you guys on the same call just a second ago? No shortage of attention. No shortage of attention. But you've raised our families together and, you know, you campaigned together. You know, all these things you've done together, worked on books and started the company, you know. How much has your relationship informed your work in co-mindfulness? A lot. I mean, Trisha and I have a very unusual relationship. People often comment and say how lucky we are that we're such good friends, we're sister-in-laws, we're confidants, we're able to work together. We're very different, yet we have a mutual respect and love for each other. And I just think we're very lucky. But yes, I think a lot of how we treat each other is reflected in the seven principles of co-mindfulness. I would just say that I feel very lucky that Trisha came into my life and we'll be lifelong friends. There'll be nothing that will change that. 
Well, I think that's really true. And I think, as you said, we're so lucky that our lives were able to intersect. And I think that it is what co-mindfulness is, is building that on one-on-one relationship, knowing that you have each other's back and then you become stronger for that. And then you start building community. And we were so lucky that we could do it through BBNR, that we were able to sort of build a community on compassion and kindness. But it did start with a relationship that you give attention to, that you listen to. Now it's my turn to cry. But, you know, both Sam and Aunt Dora and their entire family was there at our darkest time and also there at our happiest times, right? Vice versa. And a lot of co-mindfulness is just being there unconditionally for the other person. And we're very lucky. And we are mothers. Our husbands were brothers and they were best friends. Our children are close friends. That just doesn't happen all the time. We feel like, what a gift. And again, if you look at it, boy, maybe this is going to add to our life living longer and living happier. And if we could share that with others, it would make for a better community. You guys have certainly shared that with us. And like you referenced, like we're so lucky, Sam and I, I think I can speak for Sam too. Like he and I have each other in our life because of you guys, because of Bobby and my dad. Like we're just so lucky to have that. You know, not everybody is. There's people listening to this that probably don't have that foundation that you guys have put in for us or the example that you guys have for us. And I think that's why it's so awesome that you're making this co-mindfulness available to other people and showing them the way, the same way that you guys showed us. And that's a good segue for a question that I have for you both. What are the next steps? What do we do with these principles? What's coming down the line? What's the future hold for the BBNR co-mindfulness practice? Is it a book? which I might have heard is on the horizon. So yeah, thank you for asking that. So it's called the Co-Mindfulness Project. So co-mindfulness principles are part of a bigger picture. So our conferences are called the Co-Mindfulness Summits. We do have a book that's forthcoming, hopefully early next year. And it's based on the co-mindfulness principles and building a stronger community in times of COVID and when it isn't COVID. And how can people live longer, healthier, happier lives focusing on each other? And then we're very excited about our online curriculum, our masterclass, which at the conference next week we'll be unveiling and hopefully everybody at the conference will be part of that. And that's a five-week online course. It's fun. It's got lots of current movies on it. And just it's a really neat way to experience a mindfulness practice. We have the conference, the book, the curriculum, and... And the Compassion Projects. Yes. So we're really excited about our compassion projects. And we have a current one going now where we have our community all came together. Everyone gave $5. We had a partner, Healthy Fresh Meals, and she matched it. Then we matched it. And we were able to feed over a thousand people incredible meals, healthy meals from Healthy Fresh. We're calling it a project because there's many facets to the co-mindfulness movement. Doro and Tricia, I have one more ask for you. You sent me a sneak peek at the excerpt of the preface or the letter to the reader of your new book. I know it's some time before it comes out, but after reading it, I thought it's something everyone should hear, and it got me so excited about reading the book. Would you mind sharing it with all of us? Letter to the Reader. We started writing this book before anyone had heard of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Like so much of our lives, our book has changed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We initially set out to write a book to help people heal and strengthen their relationships because, as we discovered, strong supportive relationships are essential to our health and happiness. But the pandemic and the deep social inequities it has exposed has forced us to think more broadly and deeply 
about how we value and relate to each other, our families, our schools, our workplaces, our communities, the institutions making up our democracy are built on relationships. To end the systemic racism and other injustices that continue to plague our world, we believe that it is incumbent on each and every one of us to bring more understanding and compassion to all the many relationships that make up our world. To change the culture, we need to change how we fundamentally value, communicate, and connect with each other. We are living in unprecedented times. Every day we wake up not knowing what new challenge the day might have in store for us. Living with so much stress and uncertainty, we know how tempting it can be to retreat and hunger down. But to retreat and close ourselves off from each other would be a mistake. However alone and powerless we might be feeling, we need to remember that we are in this together. So let us be open and curious about each other. Let us listen to each other's grievances and hold each other's pain. Let us be kind and generous toward each other. We have a unique opportunity with this pandemic to grow our compassion for each other to build a more just and peaceful world. If writing this book has taught us anything, it's that we cannot heal without each other. Our only path forward is together. Doro and Trisha. Sounds like something everyone needs these days. I know we're still a little bit away from the book coming out, but it just got me excited. I think that's something that, especially nowadays with all that's going on in the world, uh, it's something that we need. I'm pretty excited for the book and all that the Co-Mindfulness Project has to offer. Thank you. Thanks again, guys, for having us on the podcast. Before we go, Sam and I, I think both just want to take a sec to let you know and let your audience know just how proud we are of you as your oldest sons, not only for the work you're doing on HealthGig in general and on Co-Mindfulness, but on the way you've been so dedicated to bringing us along too in this sort of area of our lives. And it goes without saying that you've armed us with tools that will really position us to live a fuller life. And we're really, really grateful for that. We love you. Yeah, we love you. And it's inspiring. I mean, we talked earlier about osmosis and practicing and kind of rubbing off on others. And I know Riley and I have been so lucky to have you guys as role models and mothers to really have all these amazing things that you're working on rub off on us. So even if we only seem to get a little piece of it, it's really meaningful to us. And we are proud of you and we love you both. Thank you for being great sons and for coming on with us. <laughs> yes, we love you both. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>